0: Well, good morning, Kirby Woods, and thank you for being here on this Memorial Day weekend. I hope that uh, your day tomorrow is a good day to rest, but also it's a good time to remember and be thankful for those who went before us and sacrificed their lives for the freedoms we enjoy. Always good to reflect on the fact that our freedoms came at a great cost. Uh, We're in a series together called The 100 Year War, Uh, moving into the third message now in this series. Uh, this is a series on the family, a long-term one, looking at a long-term perspective. Uh, this is a, uh, asking the question, what would God do through a, a people who faithfully served the Lord and sought to live generationally over a 100-year period? The first week, we looked at the value of time and living generationally and faithfulness and mundane things. Uh, last week, we looked at the root of a family, the, the marriage of a man and a woman. I made the case, hopefully, to you that marriage is the second most important decision of our lives, uh, and we were challenged to invest in our marriages. Hopefully, wives, many of you pulled that card and got yourself a nice date this past week and weren't afraid to pull that. Well, today we continue uh, with very practical messages that build upon each other with the message entitled Establishing a Base. Establishing a Base. When you're fighting a war, something that is of utmost importance is having a base. You need a place that you can rally to, a place you can store all your stuff, a place you can eat and sleep safely, a place to train, a place you can launch airplanes from, a place you can send supplies to, a place you can go after the battle has been won. You don't have to know much about war to know that it would be pretty weird to just drop soldiers in the middle of enemy territory, have them win a fight, and just say, find your way home. Uh, There's nowhere to go to now. Just go back home. That would be strange. No, you need a series of bases of strategic locations from which war can be planned and waged. I've only been on one military base myself. Uh, How many of you have ever been on a military base? Let me see. Oh, wow, a lot more than I expected. Well, I'm not special as I thought I was. Uh, I've been on one myself. It was a big one. It was uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Um, One of my chaplain friends gave me a, a, a tour of it. I was amazed at the size, and uh, there were massive airplanes. He pointed at one and said, hey, that's the biggest bomber, that's the biggest plane our Air Force has. It was a C-something, I I saw it with my eyes. It was great. Uh, Fighter planes everywhere. You know, you had the scene of the young people running in formation, shouting things as they were running, Um, and there were rows and rows of suburban-style housing. There were massive office buildings. There were dorm-style barracks, and there were... uh, Uh, There was even a big grocery store that they called the commissary uh, that was out there. I know for us that's a barbecue place, uh, but not there. And so from from sources that I could find, uh, it seems like the United States has the most bases of any other country in the world. Does that sound true to you? I believe it's true. At least the Internet says so. 750 bases in 80 different countries. We have bases everywhere in places you wouldn't even expect or think that we needed one. Um, But the point that I want to make to you in this is that it is a a clear strategy of the United States military uh, that establishing bases is a part of their plan. Establishing bases is what they do. Um, Every successful war strategy requires some kind of a military base from which you can stage your operations and train your soldiers for the fight. So the case that I want to make to you today is that the central base of the 100-year war is the Christian home. How can you establish your home as a base? What are some practical steps that you can take to change the culture of your house toward that of a Christian home? That's what I want to study with you today in God's Word. Uh, Let's pray together before we read. Lord, would you use this moment in our lives. God, work beyond me and my frail attempts uh, at presenting uh, the truth. Lord, work through and past me uh, that your word would stand tall and clear and that it would work in people's hearts, God, Uh, that we would be challenged today, that we would be encouraged today. Uh, Lord, please, by your spirit, would you work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6.1. Go ahead and turn there to Ephesians 6.1. Um, this message will be a little more of my typical expository fashion rather than topical, which is what we've been doing. I may go back to topical next week, but this week it just worked perfectly to stay in Ephesians 6. This is a short passage written by the Apostle Paul where he's laying out a series of relationships and situations, uh, what the new life in Christ should look like and verses 1 through 4 of 6, he addresses the family unit in this letter. And I would like to say every word is so loaded and rich. I really had to, I had to limit myself to like four Greek words that I'm giving you today. You know, sometimes preachers can be a little, a little much with the Greek, right? We've got to flex that we know something. So I'm trying not to do that today. But there are so many words I even could have given you uh, that are so loaded. I would really encourage that kind of study in this particular passage. So we're going to look together at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What we want to think about today is the establishing of a Christian home, a distinctly Christian home that is different from the way the world does it. Again, last week we began by saying you've got to start with an equally yoked man and woman in a covenant marriage together. That's the root before the fruit. Remember what we said last week. But now we're building upon that, saying one of the fruits of marriage is children, and so now we're going to begin looking at what happens when children are introduced to the home. How do you continue to build the culture of your family? Um, So three culture-building principles for you today when establishing your Christian home, three things to prioritize. Number one, prioritize obedience and honor, obedience and honor. We'll look back just briefly at verses 1 and 2 to see those words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Those are the two words I want to look at, obey and honor. In a distinctly Christian household, parents are to be both obeyed and honored, says Paul. That word Paul uses for children uh, indicates a child old enough to be listening to commands. And I just think it's pretty cool that when Paul wrote a letter... He addressed children to be hearing his letter read aloud. That assumes they were present in the gathering on some level. So Paul is talking to other children in the pa- older children in the passage. But uh, you and I both know we can't just wait until the children get older to introduce rules and boundaries. Um, what happens if you don't discipline a toddler? Bad things, terrible things. Um, it would be it would be impossible to. Uh, forego discipline of a small child, and then when they turn 12 or 13 to say, hey, I know we haven't given you any rules, but today's the day you become a man, and then you lay it all out. doesn't work like that. You have to build up to these things. And so um, I just want to be clear that though Paul is speaking to children old enough to hear his words, he's also speaking to parents to create this mindset in their children to receive obedience and instruction. So, looking at the words, he says obey. That's the hippo uh, Greek word, meaning to pay attention, listen, respond, heed. It means when parents speak, children should listen and respond to those words. Should. Uh, there should be an attention given when parents speak in the home. I think the first line of our memory verse of the month, Proverbs 1.8, uh, it says, "Hear my son, your father's instructions. Hear it, receive it. Uh, don't let your words be in one ear and out the other. Psalm 34:11, David writes, "Come children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord." Deuteronomy 6:4, the quintessential passage of the Old Testament law. Hear, O Israel, hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. Listen, O Israel. That's the the command. Listen, listen, heed this. A Christian household must have obedience and listening. Obedience to the voice of a parent is critical because it sets the tone not just for the house but for life, listening to other important voices outside the parent's. What happens if a child doesn't learn to listen to, son, don't go in the street. Stay put. Don't leave daddy's sight. Don't answer the door for strangers. Don't touch that skillet. It's hot. You can get really hurt. But as you grow up, the stakes are much higher even than don't touch a hot skillet, more severe. Listening and paying attention young yields itself to listening and paying attention when they're older. The gospel itself is based upon hearing a message, listening to a message, and receiving information. If we teach our kids listening is optional, they won't just disobey you. They won't just tune you out. They will disobey and tune out every other authority figure in their life. So let me describe a real-world scenario to you. This is an interesting way to think about this. Um, And I I want you to think about this for your own children. Children and youth that are disobedient and don't listen typically are considered to be annoying to most adults. I know know we don't like to say those kind of phrases with that much clarity, but I'm just telling you how it is, okay? Um, Right, wrong, or indifferent, that's how it is. So if you're an adult... And you, you adults, you all know this. If you're looking to invest your life into a young person and make yourself available and pass along wisdom and biblical perspective, chances are you're looking for a receptive young man or woman who will listen to you. Conversely, you're going to consciously or subconsciously avoid those people who you see as unteachable, disobedient, or Not one to pay attention to you. In any profession, this is true in your work. I promise it is. Leaders gravitate to teachable people. Leaders gravitate to people who want to receive that which they can give away. Uh, and, And subconsciously, we all do it, we steer away from unteachable people because we know it's a waste of time. What that means is if you raise an unteachable disobedient child, they're going to miss out on opportunities from role models in their lives that want to give away good things to them. I taught seventh, eighth, and ninth grade Bible classes in Colorado a few years ago. One of my students whom I met when I was, he was in eighth grade, and it just seemed like he gravitated toward me. He always asked me my opinion on things. He, he stuck around after class. And most importantly, he listened when I talked to him, whether it was in class or out of class. I could see the wheels turning in his head. Whenever I spoke, he, he paid attention. He listened. And he asked me more questions. Well, guess who I subconsciously gave more time and effort and energy to? That kid. To him, guess what? To, he listens to my sermons today. He will hear it. He will hear this. It's you. It's yes, you listening. It's you. And he texts me about questions in his life way after. I mean, this is six, seven years ago when I had him as a student. And he, hey, someone said this. How would you respond as a Christian to this? Hey, I'm going through this in my relationship. Hey, this is going on. What do you think? And guess what? I give him my time. I give him everything that I have because he was teachable and he paid attention to me. You want your kids to have that so that they can receive that from somebody else. That will follow them through life. They will receive quality mentors that want to give away their life to them. Paul says, your obedience should permeate the household. And the other word he uses that's interesting is the word honor. Honor. Honor your father and mother. This is the Greek, timao, meaning to hold in esteem, to respect, even in some cases to provide for. Parents, one of the primary issues we see ravaging our society today is a lack of respect for, for authority. I will tell you something. People who don't respect the law, people who don't respect police officers, people who don't respect their teachers in a classroom did not just wake up one day like that. That's a result of living in a home where parents were not honored, and specifically dad was disrespected or not there. Teachers are quitting right now at high levels, not because the pay is bad, as we're told sometimes. That's not why teachers are frustrated and why teachers are quitting. It's because they're tired of being disrespected from the students. Many good teachers right now are hanging it up because they simply can't take the constant disrespect and dishonor from students anymore. What happens then is many of the highest quality teachers will then refuse to be subjected to that and they will either go to a school where they will be honored or they will just quit. And who loses in that situation? The students lose and it's the parents' fault. Parents, we have to teach our families about honor. It's an antiquated word these days, but it's important to see there are certain things that hold weight. Not everything is a joke. Not everything is about you. Give honor to whom honor is due. Children should give honor. And parents, guess what? We have to live in such a way that our lives deserve being honored. So a Christian home is to be an environment of expectations. Obedience and honor are to be taught, modeled, and expected. Our world is currently doing the opposite. It's not hard to find a home. You can go throw a rock anywhere in your neighborhood, and you will find a home where disobedience and disrespect are commonplace amongst the, ki- the kids. But Christian parents, listen, you have to have standards and expectations. You cannot. Let your children decide how they want to be parented. For their own good, you have to be their parent before you are their friend. It is your job to make sure that they are obedient and that they honor you. This will benefit them far beyond the walls of your house, especially as they grow up and repeat that cycle and teach their children to do the same. So that's number one. In establishing a Christian home, prioritize obedience and honor. Secondly, if you're establishing a base and building a culture in the home, prioritize number two, encouragement and laughter. Encouragement and laughter. Look at the beginning of verse 4 as Paul sets up a short but very loaded point. I'm going to read the verse, um, Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So if you read back in Ephesians, Paul does this elsewhere where he has an argumentation style, Ephesians 5.18, where he says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And he uses this, it's a thing he does to uh, discourage something and encourage something at the same time. Here it is again, fathers, don't provoke, rather build up. Well, what does provoke mean? Provoke means to make someone angry, to irritate, to be a source of constant frustration, to poke at and poke at and poke at until you get a reaction. And I want you to know this applies to mothers as well, but I think Paul specifically in verse 4 directed it at fathers because, first of all, men are to be the leaders of the home, charged with the overall overseeing of discipline. But I also think that this can be a struggle for men, perhaps more than women. I know men pretty well, I am one. And although men are not the same, I can tell you that men tend toward anger and provocation more than women do. Many men struggle with encouraging one another. Uh, The funny part is that's actually what we need from one another most times. Many men never learn how to manage their emotions. And so it's this kind of weird dance, this hot mess of random dominance alpha male stuff mixed in with passive beta male stuff. Uh, frustration and moodiness and being all over the place, um, and on top of this, we know that men relate to one another by poking fun at each other. That's just the way we do. Challenging each other, competition, roughhousing—that uh, that's part of it, right? That doesn't mean it's bad. That's just what boys do. Um, it's mostly normal, but when that gets twisted and that goes awry, uh, it can become bullying and it can become provoking. anger. And yes, even fathers can do that to their own children. Uh, This can be a unique challenge even of fathers towards sons. We we often see um, many dads, not all, many dads have the mindset to treat their girls like princesses. They walk all over them and treat their sons like enemy combatants. Uh, This is particularly challenging because fathers are told to discipline their kids. But discipline, Paul says, has a thin line. There's a thin line with discipline that should not be crossed, which is to provoke and to discourage your kids. Parents, we have to walk a thin line in the home where there are expectations and boundaries. You must have those. Where obedience and honor are standards that are upheld. But at the same time, there is a point where you're provoking your kids too much, where you're hovering too much, where you're pushing and pointing out the flaw and and making them, rubbing their nose in it and raising your voice a little too much. And you have to be careful, parents, not to break a child's spirit. Your kids shouldn't be counting the days. At least I don't want this to be how my house is. I don't want my kids counting the days until they turn 18 when they can blow this popsicle joint. That's not the way that I want my kids to feel about their home. Man, I just, as soon as I turn 18, I'm getting out of this place. I don't want my kids to think that. I mean, I want them to stay forever, but I, but I don't want them to be counting as if it's this terrible place that I need to get out of. Kids need to be encouraged as much as they need to be disciplined. It can't be all correction. It has to be some encouragement. So don't just tell them what they did wrong. Tell them something they did right. Celebrate wins together as a family. I'll tell you one thing that I, I believe is a distinctive of a Christian house. What is the opposite of what Paul says is provoking anger? And that is encouragement and laughter in your home. Parents, ask this question. Is there joy in my house? Does, does the family have fun together? Are we laughing together? And I don't mean laughing at a movie while we're all facing forward, and we laughed because it was funny. I mean, we are laughing together. That's a powerful moment in the formation of a child's mind. It binds a family together to have those experiences. I was reading some statistics on the time we had with our kids this week, and one that I saw was It's an estimation that about 75% of the face-to-face interaction with your child over their lifetime will have been completed by their 12th birthday. Every summer, it's reminded, and parents get sad every time it comes out, you only get 18 summers with your kids before they grow up. There's only so many trips to the zoo where they're enamored with the animals. There's only so many times that that trip to the children's museum will be awesome before it starts to turn lame and they grow up. There's only so many times a big scoop of ice cream or just an unnecessarily large banana split will make their eyes light up and they'll say, wow, when they see it. There's only so many trips that you can go camping before they grow up and want to go with their own family. So let me encourage you parents out there. Make sure you're having fun with your family now. Laugh now. Make memories now. And again, it's not just fun for this moment, it's teaching your kids that you love them and they will pass that along to their kids. Do things from time to time that break up the monotony of your rigid schedule. Be spontaneous. Surprise your kids with something. Go get ice cream together. Go play a yard game. Have a a contest at home. Take the vacation and make it about fun, not frustration that you didn't hit the checkbox. Have fun. You know, good leadership holds standards, but at the same time fosters an environment of joy and fun. Laughter breaks down walls and barriers. I will tell you this. Part of my leadership strategy as a pastor is laughing with you. That's the way that I am. I want people who come to our church and even those who work on our staff to think, I have fun here. I like these people. I can laugh with these people. That is powerful stuff. We need that in our homes, moms and dads. So don't provoke your children to anger but build them up, raise them up. The culture of your home should be obedience and honor, tempered with encouragement, joy, and laughter. Kids that loved their childhood will grow up excited to start a family because they want to relive all of those memories with their own kids. That is a cycle that we want to perpetuate in the 100-year war. So in building a Christian culture in your home, you want to build in obedience and honor. You want to build in encouragement and in laughter. And third, you want education and training. Education and training. Paul says, do not provoke your kids to anger, but rather, so here's the other side of the comma, rather what? Look at verse 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't tear down, bring up. That word bring up means to nourish, to to feed. To invest a considerable amount of time, to invest in the rearing of children, not not to tear down and discourage, but to raise up, nourish and feed. One Greek dictionary even said to bring one to maturity. That's how long it is. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. What are we to bring them up in? Well, it tells us the discipline and instruction of the Lord. NIV says training and instruction. KJV says the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, I looked at these words to try to help you understand what they mean in their original context. And I will tell you, my mind was blown when I looked at one of these words, which takes a lot to blow my mind anymore. But here we are. These two Greek words indicating... Uh, what we are to raise our children up in, there's two words. One, paideia, two, nuthesia. Paideia and nuthesia. Now, paideia is more of the positive term. It's what you do. It's what you build, what you create. And nuthesia, more of a correction term, what you admonish, what you discourage. Now, again, I went down a rabbit hole as I began to pull the thread on that word paideia. So before we get into it, I want to set you up. Can I set you up for later? Uh, I want you to agree to something up front with me. Think about the Apostle Paul, the author, his academic training, what we know that he knows from his sermons, um, when he travels around preaching, especially in Corinth, Thessalonica, and Athens, all the places he went to and preached, all right? Question for you. Do you believe that Paul had a solid understanding of the greater Greek culture? Do you believe Paul knew the Greek culture? I'm hearing mostly yes. Okay, Here's another one. Do you think Paul knew who Plato and Aristotle were and may have even studied their works? Okay, I think so too. I just wanted to make sure you were on this train with me before we got going. So um, I think there's evidence from 1 Corinthians alone that Paul knew the Greek system. Um, and, And I say that because... The Greek word he chose, paideia, is a massive word in Greek culture. So our English Bibles render it discipline or nurture. And, and I know you've got to make a choice as a translator, but man, it's just, those are so small compared to what this word means. What did paideia mean to the Greeks? Well, we can look at quotations from Plato and Aristotle in the 300s BC, and it, it came, that's when the word came to uh, it's, it's usage in the term that we see it today. So here's how they saw it. The goal of paideia is to teach love toward things that deserve love, repudiation toward things that deserve repudiation. It should harmoniously combine admonition and habit to safeguard against sexual excesses with gluttony and their consequences. Along with gymnastics and music, language and writing also are essential. Musical education is to be a noble source of joy. It fashions the ethos of the soul and endows with moderation force and decorum. The aim is the good man. How do you pick one word to describe that? Uh, that's what the Greeks saw paideia was. And that's it really, it's everything that went into the building of an ideal citizen. That's what the word is. It was everything that happened to them educationally and culturally as children, as students, as citizens, everything that formed their worldview along with the body. And, I mean, you got gymnastics in here, all right, uh, with music, all sorts of things. A hundred years later, after, after um, the Greeks was a Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, he gave his definition of paideia and said it is two things primarily, education and culture, It is primarily education and culture. That's drawing it down to two words. And one more thing to prove what I'm about to say. As the Roman Empire took over and Greece lost their power, the Romans gained power, and they needed to capture paideia in Latin, their language, they picked a word. The word they used is humanitas, which is where our current field of study called humanities comes from. What is humanities? Well, it is the study of all languages, literatures, arts, history, and philosophy. Again, a lot of stuff. So, let's back up from all that history we just looked at. When Paul says, bring them up in the paideia, it's way more than just, if they're bad, give them a spanking. A whole lot more than that. It's the entire education and culture that a child is exposed to that forms them in the mold of the ideal. It's everything that forms a person into who they are. And what really makes this get real for us is that Paul adds two words to the end of this. Bring them up in the paideia of the Lord, of God. We are to raise up our children in an education, worldview formation, and culture formation that is devoted to God, The same way that the Greeks had secularized uh, a philosophical and ethical system to create their ideal good man, Christians are to have a system that does all of those things and answers all of those questions, but with the Scriptures guiding the direction and with the recognition that Christ is Lord and King and shapes everything, this affects every part of life. So, Three practical takeaways. I'm going to get really real here as we draw in our conclusion, okay? Three practical considerations to take away in light of the command, if Paul really meant raise up your children in the paideia of God. Three quick takeaways for what that means. And I'm going to go in increasingly hard pills to swallow from least to greatest, okay? Number one. First, Parents. This absolutely destroys the concept that the only Christian education your child needs is at church two or three hours a week. Destroys it. Listen, we will do, on behalf of Kirby Woods, we will do our absolute best. We will do the best we can. And furthermore, I will tell you, we are going to invest in our children over the next two years in big ways. But even with all of that, we just don't have access to your kids for enough raw hours to do the kind of damage that we need to do in a way uh, that, that would actually change their hearts and lives. We, it, it's a brief exposure that we get with, with our kids. The, the bulk of the weight of the hours of their life is going to fall to you, parents. I think that Moses wrote on this concept... I think Moses and God had this concept of paideia before the Greeks ever said it. I can show you from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It'll be on the screen. I'll read it for you. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the summation of the old covenant. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your who? Children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your, what? House. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. That's a whole day, by the way. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your, what? House and on your gates. We must, we must recover the view that parents are teachers. And the home is a place where training takes place i tell you, I saw a clip from Adrian Rogers this week, um, and he said this. We complain that the Ten Commandments are removed from the schoolhouse and other places, but how many of us parents responded by putting the Ten Commandments up in our home? Furthermore, how many parents even know the Ten Commandments? I thought that was a powerful statement. Uh, it, It exposes the common view that it is everybody else's responsibility to train up our child but us and that is not true. That's first. Second, the second practical takeaway from raising your children in the paideia of God, it is hard to read the definition of the phrase paideia of God and come to a real-world application that looks like our current public school system. I understand Every teacher, every school, every district, every administrator, every state is different. I understand that. There are great and wonderful godly teachers fighting the good fight for our kids. Some of you here in the room are doing that. Praise God for you. I was raised in public school myself. But listen, things today are not what they were five years ago. There has been a massive change for the worse. And my point is that if you look into this concept of paideia as Greeks saw it, and then Paul commands us, take that subvert it, Christianize it, and combine it with Deuteronomy 6. It is hard to say that handing our children over to the secular government for their education for 13 years plus four more of radical anti-God college is obeying Ephesians 6.4. We need to be asking the question. Just ask the question, can I say before the Lord, I am raising up my children in the paideia of God in that system. If the answer is yes, God bless you. Go and be blessed and be on your way. But if the answer is no, don't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. That's number two. Thirdly, for our practical applications in the real world, if we are to raise up our kids in the paideia of God, and every definition of paideia you can find seems to indicate And everyone I read said this, that it refers to the culture our children are raised in and around. Christians, we can no longer say that it is not our responsibility to fight the culture wars. The Greeks did not view Paideia strictly as in the home or in the classroom, but every part of the culture that affected their child. A Christian that says, I don't care about the culture I live in. It's like a fish saying, I don't care about the water I swim in or that passes over my gills. Unless you are Amish, you are a part of this culture and it affects you every single day. So think of your formative years from age eight to 18, for example. Think of the generation you lived in. What what was happening in the world from eight to 18? Even if you were a Christian, I'm betting, on some level, you were affected by the popular movies of the time. You know the catchphrases of your generation. You know the hits of the top 40. You know and remember where you were when the big news story broke. What was it, JFK? Was it the Challenger? Was it 9-11? We all have those. They're a part of our minds. You follow the sports team of your time. You see the art that the world said was beautiful. You walked past statues where you looked up at someone that that venerated that person for something they had done. When a national anthem plays at a baseball game, what do you do? You stand up, you take your hat off, and you cross your heart. Who told you to do that? It's part of the culture. It's just part of the culture. No one even has to say to do it. You see architecture of the buildings that you're in, and it affects the way you think about life. There's color palettes that are unique to the time in which you lived. Hairstyles, unique to the time in which you lived. Graphic design and fonts and colors. Things happen. You, you, you watch the Super Bowl and you expect to laugh at some commercials. Why? It's part of the culture. One way or another, it forms your mind as to what is good and acceptable among your people and among your culture. Your culture will affect what you believe is true, good, and beautiful. We have a culture here in America. We have one. Just like China has a culture. Just like Brazil has a culture. Just like Kenya has a culture. Just like France has a culture. And those cultures can be formed in light of Christian influence or they can run counter to Christian influence and be actively hostile to Christ. But the thing that I want for your consideration, parents, If I am to raise up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in the paideia of God, why would I spend so much time feeding them scriptures and training them in righteousness and then have no concern as to what their eyeballs see as we trot them through target past the big pride display in the front? Why would I devote my life to raising healthy girls and boys and then have no concern of the cultural air in which they breathe that it might be polluted with dirty smog and poison gas. So Christians, I believe that our culture is what it is because we have largely retreated from it. The darkness loves when the light retreats. And I believe that there is a time and a way to engage in what has been called culture wars, not for political point scoring, but to clean up the air that our children breathe as they live their lives, and to glorify God in all things, including our shared culture. He is Lord, not just of your little heart and of this church, but he is Lord of all things, even that which we have written off as secular, because he is Lord of all. So next week, I intend to tell you what I believe are the greatest threats to the Christian home for us to be looking at as wolves on the horizon. This week's message primarily was about what to build in to your home, the positive side. Build these things in. Have this culture in your home. So in conclusion, we'll recap. We have said every successful war requires a base, a preparation point where soldiers can go and train. And that is the Christian home with our children. As you seek to build a Christian culture in your home, you are to do three things. Prioritize obedience and honor. Prioritize encouragement and laughter. And prioritize education and training. Build these things into your home, and you will have a strong base from which you can participate in the 100-year war. Let's pray together.